Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. My apologies that this episode is coming to you about a week late. I was leaving the editing to the last minute and some other things came up, so in the end I couldn't get it done on time. Editing is by far the most time-consuming part of the podcast, and I'm trying to think of better ways to do it. I would guess I've spent at least 700 hours editing all the episodes of the podcast, and that figure is probably conservative. Unfortunately, I've been finding I have less and less time to dedicate to the show, so I'm looking for different ways of doing things. So if you have any ideas or would like to help with editing the podcast, drop me a line on Twitter at either at ForeignPod or at JakeSpring, or send me an email at foreignpod at gmail.com. On to our guest. This week I spoke to Neil Munchie, West Africa editor at Bloomberg. As I may have noted on an earlier podcast, I won an Overseas Press Club Award this year, but I was crushed when I tested positive for COVID and was unable to attend the award ceremony. Thankfully, though, I've been able to use the podcast to connect with some of my fellow winners, whose work I really admire. Neil won for a series he wrote while he was at the Financial Times called The Consequences and Drivers of Conflict in West Africa, which he admits is a bit of a mouthful. But it's really a tour de force series that gets at some of the biggest problems in the region. Over five stories, Neil explains how the fall of Muammar Gaddafi flooded the region with weapons and fighters, spurring much of the violence in Western Africa. He looked at the rapidly expanding industry of kidnapping people for ransom in Nigeria, as well as how France is losing its influence in Mali. He also lays out how jihadists make money by taking over gold mines in the region. But if you read only one of his pieces, I'd suggest you check out the one about Russian mercenaries fighting rebels in the Central African Republic on behalf of the government there. Despite widespread reports of mercenaries working for the Wagner Group committing crimes against humanity, the group and Russian authorities deny that they are even there fighting at all. Neil will talk about how he had to seek fair comment from a catering company that was linked to the Wagner Group and got about 150 pages in responses, mainly seemingly an attempt to troll him. Most surreal, though, he'll talk about a big-budget action film produced by the group in the Central African Republic and its bizarre mix of reality and fiction. I'll post a link to where you can read all these stories for free, getting around the Financial Times paywall. You'll really come away with a lot better understanding of what is going on in roughly a third of Africa. So now, without further ado, here's my interview with Neil Munchi, West Africa editor at Bloomberg. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Neil. Yeah, thanks for having me. To start, just to warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene for us, could you tell us where you are geographically, a little bit about the physical space around you, and what your past week of work has been like? So I'm in uh, Lagos, Nigeria. I'm in my bedroom in our apartment. It, uh, it's been raining the last few days because we're in the middle of the rainy season, but the sun is out, which is nice. And I have locked the door because my kids will probably try to bust it at some point. <laughs> yeah, the last week of work has been busy because I, I mean, I'm an editor at Bloomberg now instead of straight up correspondent, but I kind of do write from time to time too. So I'm doing reporting on a story right now. And so that's been pretty busy while still doing kind of my day job, which is editing. So do you oversee things in West Africa or what? what's the division there? 
Yes, I'm the West Africa editor for economics and government. So I do kind of edit all the non-corporate stuff. Gotcha. Cool. And we'll get more into what you do now a little bit later. But a big part of the podcast is telling people how you got to where you are today. And I like to start way back at the beginning. If you could tell us a little bit about where you were born, what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest early on in uh, journalism. I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee. Oh, wow. You're like the millionth person from Wisconsin. I'm also from Wisconsin. <laughs> I know, I, actually, I noticed that in I was listening to the podcast the last few days and how many Wisconsinites there are that are foreign correspondents kind of surprised me because I never, I mean, it's rare that I meet any, basically. Yeah. But that's quite funny. Where are you? You're, you're from Madison, from outside Madison? From outside Madison. I was born up in near Oshkosh. Grew up first half in Oshkosh, second half in McFarland, Wisconsin. But yeah, it's totally not by design. Like, I, I didn't know that till right this moment. And with uh, Julie McCarthy, too, I had no idea until we started talking. She was from Wisconsin. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah, so I mean, I grew up uh, in Brookfield, Wisconsin, which is a kind of suburb of Milwaukee. And uh, my folks are from Bombay, so they moved over in the 70s. And raised me and my three siblings in Brookfield. You know, it was like a typical suburban American upbringing. You know, I played poorly on the football team. (laughs) And I uh, wanted it. Well, I don't know if I wanted to be, but I was going to be a doctor. My dad is a doctor. My older sister is a doctor. My younger brother later became a doctor. Wow. Sort of inconceivable for me to have done anything else. And, you know, I mean, I did well in science and math and everything. And I did well in English, but I never really thought about it, frankly, the idea of being a reporter. You know, I mean, we got all the, we got the Journal Sentinel, Time, Newsweek, that kind of thing. But it wasn't ever sort of my intention to go into journalism. And, uh, I went to the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities, which is great. But I went in pre-med, basically. So I took a lot of chem and bio classes, calc and that kind of stuff. And I think it was in my sophomore year. I took a creative writing class, just as kind of like a creative outlet, like just kind of to have fun as an elective alongside all my science and math stuff. And I really loved it. And I decided I was going to be a writer and I broke it to my parents and they were like, well, you shouldn't. (laughs) Uh, That's a horrible idea. But I mean, my parents generally are very cool. So they were just like, sure, but just take OCHEM too, just in case you decide you do want to be a doctor. But I think after a semester, I was like, no, I'm switching my major. I want to be a poet, which is an insane thing. Uh, to say (laughs) and uh, I think after like a semester of that I realized that you know if you want to be a writer probably the most practical route is to be a journalist this was in the early 2000s and I mean you know the journalism industry was starting to die was dying a bit but was not fully on its way still not a very practical decision but it turned out that the University of Minnesota had a really great student newspaper 
that's, I think they might have said that it was the oldest student newspaper. I don't know, whatever it was, but I think it was the biggest at the time. So the readership of the Minnesota Daily then was like 30,000 because Minnesota is a huge campus of like 40,000 people, right? And it served as kind of like the third paper in the cities, right? There's the St. Paul Pioneer Press and there's the Minneapolis Star Tribune, which are good papers. And then there was the Minnesota Daily. And it was big too, like a real newsroom, you know, with, I mean, it must have been, I don't know, 40 reporters and editors, 10 photographers, you know what I mean? It's like decent sized. And so I, I originally kind of like a lot of college students wanted to be like an opinion columnist and I pitched a couple and I wrote them and I came in asking for a job at some point to the editor of the opinion pages or something. And they said, there's a lot of liberal college students who want to write, but you know, if you want to, if you want to get into the paper, like become a reporter. And I thought, okay, well, let me give it a shot. So I applied and I ended up being the first gig I had, there was the housing reporter. So yeah, it was kind of about neighborhoods, about housing policy, that kind of thing. I was under the Metro desk. Then I moved up to be, I think we called it assistant editors or associate editors, but basically like the four editors under the managing editor. And I, God, I can't remember what my title was. It wasn't Metro, but it was, I don't know. I covered housing and a couple of cops and courts were under me though. And a few others. And I just, I really loved working at the paper. It was a ton of fun. And I mean, I think pretty soon after I started, I realized that like I was going to be a journalist. I moved to the the School of Journalism and Mass Communications there. And I made it up to managing editor of the paper, which was cool. And it was a really formative experience. I didn't have anything kind of before I started the Daily. So I worked there for about two and a half years. And it really kind of gave me a good foundation for my career. Yeah, yeah. No, student journalism yeah, is very important to me, too. I worked at the Daily at Northwestern and did not study journalism. So that's where I learned all of my journalism from, or most of it. Let's see. So, yeah, what, what happens after that? You graduate, presumably, and what do you do? So I had not really done any internships at newspapers because I kind of came to journalism pretty late. I interned when I did my study abroad in London, my semester there, I interned in parliament for an MP named Tessa Jowell, who was a minister in the government, but I kind of worked in her constituency office and her constituency was Brixton and South London, which is a very cool part of London, kind of Afro-Caribbean neighborhood that obviously is like very gentrified now, but it was cool. I was like a caseworker basically for them. And so I did like immigration casework and sort of reuniting families. It was wild, incredibly rewarding. Huh. It was quite cool. And I thought I would do this, you know, I thought, ah, okay, well I did it for the British government. Let me do it for the American government. So I applied for an internship in DC and it was awful. <laughs> it was very different. I, I don't know. I sent out form letters and I think maybe if you work in the constituency office, which is what I did in London, like you have more of that real touch kind of thing. Like, and if you're in DC, it's very kind of, I don't know, boring and sort of political in a sort of obvious way. Yeah. That was a little bit disillusioning, frankly, 
then I went back to school and uh, I had a very good magazine writing teacher, professor at Minnesota. And I, you know, I wanted to be, who doesn't want to be a magazine writer, right? And she'd kind of introduced me to the great writers at Esquire. So like Mike Sager was one who was there at the time. I think, I don't know if he's still there. I think Michael Paterniti was more GQ, but you know, it's like the idea that GQ and Esquire had this history and even present of like literary journalism. So I kind of got obsessed with the Esquire kind of back catalog. So I applied for an internship there in New York and I knew I wanted to leave the cities in the Midwest. I knew I wanted to go to New York uh, and then I got it. So I moved to New York and I guess this would be 2006 and I interned at Esquire and I guess I should have known this, but I didn't fully appreciate how staff writers or freelancers write all of the good stories in glossy magazines, in most magazines, and staff editors do front of book stuff and not very exciting or interesting stuff most of the time and sit at a desk. And that realization, it was a little bit sad. Um, (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, I was in an Esquire and uh, maybe I could get hired as an editorial assistant, then move up to assistant editor and then associate editor. And But they didn't hire me on right away. They didn't have anything going. So I went and worked at a trade publication down in the financial district that was very bullshitty. <laughs> it was uh, one of they, they ran two trade pubs. One was on the farm industry. One was on airlines, I think, aviation. And it really kind of, it felt like salesmen had started these publications as a way to sell ads and make money. And then they hired a couple journalists kind of to write some quasi paid content, essentially, right? So I think I lasted about six months there. And then one of the guys at Esquire was like, listen, we need fact checkers, you know, it's contract basis, but I think it was two weeks a month, 20 bucks an hour. It's pretty decent money. I could freelance at the same time, arguably. So I did that for, I think, about a year. It was quite cool. I mean, I got two weeks off basically to hang out in New York. It was quite nice. And then I don't know how I got the idea or why it sort of came into my head. I think it was because I wanted to stay in New York longer. And, you know, I didn't have any internships besides that Esquire one. I decided to apply at Columbia for the journalism school. And I got in and I started there in 07. And what did you focus on at uh, Columbia? So I did the MS, just kind of reporting newspaper, the newspaper stream. I didn't do broadcast or radio. And... It was a good experience. I don't know. It was nice to be in the city. I don't know if I would do it again. I think probably a lot of people think that because it was a lot of money. And I think down the line, it probably got me jobs, to be fair, the cachet of it. But I think towards the end, I started to realize I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And, you know, journalism school doesn't really prepare you for that. There, There was one class, you know, it prepares you with the nuts and bolts of, journalism and how to report and that kind of stuff. And it was quite fun. And I have a lot of friends from those days, but 
you know, there was one international reporting class at the time. And I don't know, the class seemed to consist of us reading clips <laughs> and then talking about them in class, which I get because, you know, what else would you really do? Yeah. You can't really teach this in a classroom. We didn't talk about the stuff that I think later you understand as a foreign correspondent, which is like figuring out how to translate a place for your readers back home or wherever they are, you know, connecting that place to global themes and currents, like the sweep, that kind of stuff was not stuff that we talked about, which is the kind of stuff that I would talk about now, right? Sure. Yeah, so I was at Columbia for that year. It was great. There were great professors and then a lot of great people. And then at the end of it, I got an internship at the Boston Globe as a health and science reporter through the Kaiser Foundation. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to do this internship program where they placed people at... I don't know, 10 or 15 publications around the country on their health and science desk, which is quite cool. It was fun to work in like a real newsroom, though it was, I mean, it was a bit eye-opening because the globe was kind of in full swing of shrinking at that time. So there had been, I think, a couple rounds of buyouts and layoffs already, it was a little bit fraught in that way, but it was a really good experience. And Boston was a good town to cover health and science because the biotech industry and all the universities and that kind of thing. I got to do some environment stuff. It was quite good. And at the end, they kind of asked me if I would stay on, but I didn't really love Boston. My, my sister went to college there. She lived there for a long time, but I don't know. It somehow just wasn't, wasn't for me. And at that time, Columbia started an internship program. It was going to be the first year with the Times of India in Delhi. So I applied for that. You know, I've been traveling to India my whole life, mostly Bombay, to visit family and that kind of thing. So I kind of had that connection. But I grew up in a pretty tight-knit Indian community in Milwaukee. And I think among us, I'd be one of the least likely probably to move to India. <laughs> I mean, in part because I barely speak the language. But I had kind of realized that I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And this was a great opportunity to do it. I thought I would go over the internship, I think was four or five months, and then just kind of stick around for another year and freelance and kind of see what happens. So I moved to Delhi. Okay, wow. And the Times of India, I mean, I certainly know them. They had a correspondent in China when I was there. They seem to be huge in readership, but I can't say that I know that much beyond that. And it is an English language publication, or do they publish in multiple languages? Do you know? So, yeah, I mean, I didn't know much about Times of India either, frankly, but it is, I think it must still be, it's the biggest English language publication in the world. So they have editions in like every major city in India that are kind of separate, but then they have kind of a national hub. I think the readership then might have been like 12 or 14 million or something. I mean, just like astronomical figures at the time. And their Hindi version, readership, not subscriber base, because like papers are passed around in India, right? Their readership was estimated for the Hindi edition at like 90 million people read their Hindi <laughs> edition every day, right? So it's like, we're talking wow. wild numbers. What does the Times of India do with a guy who's just showed up from the U.S.? Well, there were six of us. So six Columbia 
graduates and I didn't know the others too well actually from school, but six of us went over. It was a very funny thing. So we worked in the office in Delhi. There, there was no real structure to it. Some folks just did nothing. <laughs> like, you know, just worked on freelance stuff. Didn't really work for anything actually in the paper, just kind of did their own thing. And that was fine. But they put us all up in a house owned by the family that the fabulously wealthy family that owns the Times of India, right in the kind of center of South Delhi. And Nothing fancy, to be fair. This house was nothing fancy, but it was free rent. And it was quite a weird, I mean, it wasn't weird, whatever. It's a bit like my grandma's house where uh, <laughs> you weren't allowed to have any meat because the family are strict vegetarians. So, and no booze either, which I think we broke that rule. Yeah, so mostly, I mean, I did a couple stories for the Times of India. Weirdly, I did a handful of stories about the 2008 election because it was happening then. I don't know, stuff about people voting from abroad and I don't know. I did a lot of stuff on election night and you know, the Times of India the journalistic standards were were not exactly what maybe you're used to, you know, turning paraphrases into quotes like the editor would do that and then just kind of, I would see it in the paper the next day kind of thing. Yeah. And then say something and he'd be like, ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> so things are pretty loose there. But what was cool is, you know, we were in Delhi. There are a lot of foreign court. There were then, I, I think there are less now, but there were a lot of foreign correspondents there. And there was a very kind of vibrant foreign correspondents club, which I think, you know, I know that's fraught, but it was quite, you know, every Thursday kind of everyone went and, Everyone from all the kind of publications would go there for drinks. And it was quite cool. Met a lot of reporters from all the outlets there. And yeah, it was great. So uh, your f six months are up or however long it was. And I imagine you hang around. Yeah. So I decided to move to Bombay because that's where my family is from and like I could go live at my grandma's house rent free and kind of try to freelance from there and I don't know in a way in retrospect I regret it a little bit because most of the like foreign newsrooms are based in Delhi right the capital not Bombay which is the commercial capital but I don't know for various reasons I decided I guess to try Bombay and so I moved down there and I realized pretty quickly that I couldn't really hack it. As a freelancer, I did a piece from there where I traveled to Hyderabad to write about some ambulance service that was being started up there for the Globe. You know, the Globe bought the story, but it in no way covered the travel or the hotel or anything like that. And I kind of realized, well, I'm not sure I can... And, you know, that was you know, one idea. And I, the idea of having to keep coming up with ideas and pitch multiple places to finally get a bite and then probably lose money was sort of, I don't know, it didn't sound great. It also wasn't great. You know, I'd go work at a cafe or something. I'd come home and my grandma would be like, so uh, what'd you do at work today? And I'd be like, uh, I read the internet and did basically nothing. You know, <laughs> there's this expectation that I should have a job. This is her 
grandson from America who has, you know, gone to an Ivy League school and stuff. And I was basically doing nothing for months. <laughs> and then what happened, which is quite funny, they'd recently opened an edition of GQ in India. And oh, huh. they were looking for editors. I thought, well, that's a full-time job and I can do features for them, which was kind of part of their pitch when I applied. And so I took that job. I did that for about two years. Oh, wow. Was that back in Delhi or where was that? No, in Bombay. So this is all in Bombay. Once I left Delhi, I stayed in Bombay for the next four years or so. Okay. How was that and, and what happens next, I guess? Yeah, it was okay. It was, uh, GQ India was not really a journalistic enterprise, it turns out. <laughs> but I guess the perks were that I did write a few big features that I was proud of in the end. And because it was like, you know, a glossy magazine, I got sent on press junkets from time to time. And I had met the woman who is now my wife when in Goa, which is kind of where you go to the beach in India, over the Christmas break in 2008-9. And she is from Belgium. So she was living in Antwerp and I was getting sent on these press junkets to, where did I go? Switzerland, Milan, Berlin. And so I could go meet her in Europe pretty easily. She could just fly down. So that was kind of great in a way it allowed us to kind of really build our relationship. And then eventually she moved out to India oh, wow. and you know, now we have two kids. So that's great. Yeah. So, I mean, I was at GQ India for two years, which is frankly felt like a little bit too long in the end, but I did a couple of pieces that I was really proud of. And eventually I left it and decided to try freelancing again. We were living in Bombay Sarah, my wife, had moved out by then. And again, I was terrible at it <laughs> and didn't really freelance. And then it was one of these things, I think that often happens, at least to me, where it's like when it rains, it pours. And I, I don't know, I somehow was in the running for, it was the time of blogs, first off, right? And everyone had an India blog and then they had a China blog too. Maybe they had South Africa blogs too. It was a really like bricks kind of thing. And so the New York Times had India Inc. The Journal had India Real Time. And the FT had Beyond Bricks. And I was somehow in the running for all three jobs. <laughs> but the FT one was a more stable and kind of permanent one. The I think the India Inc. one was like writing profiles of business leaders like a couple times a month or something like that. And I don't remember what the journal one was. But in any case, the FT offered it to me. It makes no sense because I had never read the FT before. <laughs> you know, I mean, as an American, it's just not one of those things. It wasn't even a thing by the time I got to graduate school where people were like, oh, where will you work next? The FT? No, you know? I don't know how it was for you, if it was like a prominent part of your life. but No, I mean, I had never heard of it in Wisconsin, certainly. I don't think I had ever even heard of it in college. I think I heard about it after I graduated. I mean, once you're abroad, you start to hear about it. Yeah, and you like see the pink, oh, that pink paper. Yeah, I get it. Right, yeah. Yeah, and so it, this had happened because 
a buddy who was our neighbor was a reporter for the FT in Bombay and they had an opening and he was like, you should apply for it. And I was like, are you sure? I've, <laughs> I've never been a business reporter. I never read the paper. And he was like, yeah, but you went to Columbia. They'll love it. <laughs> and to be fair, you know, it worked out. Yeah. I mean, you worked there up until very recently. So, I mean, that was what, late 2000s, 2010 or something? Yeah, so that was summer of 2011 is when I started. So that means you worked there for more than 10 years from the sound of it. There must have been several different iterations of your existence there. Just, yeah, tell us a little bit about uh, your time there. So I started as a Beyond Bricks reporter, which meant a lot of short kind of snappy stuff. And I churned it out like crazy because you got, I, I had, I got a retainer, but then I also got paid like, I think it was 55 bucks a story. And this was like, even if it was two paragraphs, 55 bucks. <laughs> so I wow. was, I was churning out stuff like crazy. You know, that was pretty great. And I mean, there were some growing pains kind of figuring out how to write a company's results story how to write an economic story, like economic data story or something beyond that. Getting the kind of FT style, which is very different than what I've been used to. Was there an office there with a few people to like teach you these things or were you off on your own? Yeah, so that was quite good. So our office was like a couple blocks from where we lived, me and this buddy who had gotten me the job. So we could walk to the office, you know, and our, a bunch of, all of our friends kind of, who most of them were journalists lived in the, in the area and we had a bar kind of on the rooftop of a shitty hotel nearby. It was fantastic. So, you know, my buddy James, uh, who got me the job, he kind of helped me a lot, obviously, to kind of figure out how to write, how to pitch, all that kind of stuff. And there were always two of us in that office. Later, he went to Delhi and someone else came in. But it was good to have someone else to kind of bounce ideas off of, send drafts to, that kind of stuff. Because without it, I would have failed very quickly, like very quickly. (laughs) And, you know, in the end, right before I left, I I did just over a year, a year and a half, maybe a little over a year and a half with the FT in Bombay. And just before I left, the FT magazine did a big India issue. They did a themed issue just about India. So I got to do like a 4,000 word piece about this coal mining region in the East where there have been these kind of underground fires have been burning since it's like 120 years since the British basically started mining coal, uh, which is great. Like the pictures were amazing. The piece I think turned out pretty good, but it was like a good, you know, after mostly churning out blog bloggy kind of short bits to be able to do that was kind of a good capstone to my time there. Yeah. And I'd been in India by that time, like four and a half years or so. And I mean, I've realized in retrospect that I can kind of only live anywhere for maybe five years before I get the itch. But I also think that like one of my grand theories about journalism is that the first two years you start a beat or in a place, you're not great at it because you don't really understand the place very well. And in the third, you start to kind of get your feet, 
And I think probably by the fourth, you're kind of peaking. And when you're into the fifth, you start to get a little bored, kind of want to go. And so that is what had happened. In India, I was kind of ready to go. And this gig came up to be the Chicago and Midwest correspondent. And I didn't, oh, wow. I didn't apply for it because I didn't really want to go back to the States or go back to the Midwest. But I think I got a nudge from a higher up editor that was like, you should apply for this. And so I did, and then I got it. And uh, it was kind of, it was nice to go back home, right? And very close to home, right? Very close to Milwaukee. My sisters live in Chicago. I have a lot of friends in the area and that kind of stuff. So I became the Chicago Midwest correspondent, I guess at the beginning of 2013. And yeah, that means you're an American, but nominally a foreign correspondent because the FT is British. Yeah. So you have to explain the Midwest back to people in the UK. Which was quite cool. It was yeah, quite yeah. quite nice. I mean, I had some issues with how like the folks at the FT kind of framed, you know, they kind of framed the Midwest as the, a lot of the heartland and stuff like that. Very kind of sure. tell us the story from the heartland. And it'd be like, and there, you know, there are cities here. This isn't all just farms. <laughs> and what I ended up doing in Chicago, Chicago was supposed to cover some companies, mostly the food companies, McDonald's, Mondelez, and a few others, and then Caterpillar, John Deere, some of those. But then the other half was to cover, you know, the Midwest. And at that time, what was happening was Detroit was going bankrupt, and murders and gun violence was spiking in Chicago. So at that time, they far surpassed it now, but at that time, Chicago was just about to have 500 murders in a year, which is like the first time since the 90s. So I I ended up covering gun violence a lot and going to Detroit a lot, which was awesome, and not doing much of the company's stuff, which has never been my bag. And then Mike Brown got shot in Ferguson and the the first night there were kind of big protests and unrest and stuff. But the next day I called my editor in New York and was like, I think I'm going to go down there because I think it might be something. Maybe it's just a one-off, but like it seems to be a lot. And so I went down there the day after and then I ended up staying for two weeks. And that was quite a formative experience too. So that kind of became a big part of my beat thereafter when I was in the States was covering race because of that. I mean, the FT, it is a financial publication, but that's a very, very general news story. They encouraged you to do that. Was that something that it grew for you, but also with their encouragement? Yeah. I mean, let's put it this way. They didn't, there was always, there, there was appetite, right? But they wouldn't, push me to go do that kind of stuff right so with ferguson it had become the biggest story in the country while i was there right and i was reporting the shit out of it and so it was like i was updating stories from my phone all day like you know it was going on the front page front of the website like homepage, the splash that kind of stuff okay so it's funny but the ft didn't encourage it but they had appetite right so if if you pitch it often they'll take it and this was such a big story i think they couldn't 
it became such a big story as I was reporting it. You know, I was out there for two weeks. And the thing was, I was solo while the Times, even the Journal, everyone else had like multiple reporters on it. And then they were also rotating in and out during that time. And I was kind of, you know, I was on my own, but it was kind of great. You know, I was writing news. I was writing analysis, big page, you name it. So that was, it was great. And was this the first time you covered a big breaking news event, like on the ground, I imagine? Yeah. I mean, I'd done a little bit of terrorist attacks in India, right? But they weren't as big as this this one was or as sort of resonant, let's say. They might have been like a, you know, a one-off story kind of thing. So, yeah, it really was. And, you know, it was quite fraught to, I think some people probably overplayed kind of the danger to journalists and that kind of stuff there, you know, especially having come from India then and then now being in Africa, like the danger to local journalists just like outstrips anything that happened to any, any American journalists in Ferguson. Then I did, I got briefly arrested oh, wow. along with a couple other reporters in the parking lot of a Target, which is quite funny. On what grounds? I don't know. I can't I mean, I remember writing about it and I can't remember. Basically, we were, there was this, another day of like peaceful protests and on the main drag where all this stuff was happening. I often hung out in this barber shop, but they were closed that day. So I could like charge my phone, shoot the shit, get my hair cut. And they were closed that day. So I had to go up to my car to charge my phone and the media center or staging ground, I think they called it, was in the Target parking lot, like just past <laughs> an overpass at the end of the road. And so I went up there to charge my phone, and then I start seeing all these cops like rushing past me, and then they start shoot. They're like shooting tear gas grenades into this peaceful protest that I was just at. You know, it's like full of grandmas and little kids in strollers and stuff. Wow! And so we couldn't go right behind them because the cops were saying no there was like a couple other reporters up there who were trying as well to get down to see like what the hell is happening down here and we couldn't do that so me and two others walked up towards the target and went to the side of the overpass where we thought we could see over or maybe go over and these cops kind of rushed up and arrested us and I remember, I think like Vine was a thing then. So I was like yeah. posting Vines of, uh, of this encounter. And it, yeah, you know, it was all over Twitter and that kind of stuff at the time. They let us go pretty quick when kind of cooler heads prevailed. And they were like, hey, dude, it's not a good look to arrest these journalists, probably. <laughs> so they let us go. It was pretty, I mean, you know, it was 20 minutes or something. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Not calling your editor from from jail. Yeah. You know, your one free call. That. <laughs> okay. Yeah, wow, that sounds like quite an experience. And yeah. so that becomes a big theme for your time in that job. How how long were you there for? Was it similar to a foreign posting, you know, five years and and then you moved on? No, so, I mean, the thing is, so in focusing on the the general news part of things, especially on race and stuff, and Detroit in a way too, uh, I neglected 
the company's half of things pretty hard. So not long after the Ferguson verdict, I kind of got a call not so subtly saying, like, we want you to come to New York to work on newsletters because they want someone who's more corporate in Chicago. So that's the thing. It's like there was an appetite for these stories, but it wasn't considered credit. You know what I mean? Towards, yeah. you know, it's like you don't accrue credit by doing those stories. For your job, it's almost like a side hustle. Gotcha. Yeah. So I moved to New York in, let's see, we moved to New York in early 2016, I think. So I did about two and a half, three years in Chicago. And then we did about two and a half, three years in New York. So I was the editor of our daily newsletters, which frankly was an easy enough, like low workload enough job that I could continue to report on race which was obviously still a big deal, you know, and cover, essentially cover black and brown people in the run up to the 2016 election. I kind of did all of that. I mean, this is a, this is a thing. If, if I think if I was at the New York times, especially, but even the journal, certainly the post, there'd be a lot of competition for that beat. And at the FT there wasn't. And so I could just do this on the side of my regular job and write like magazine stories, big pages, which are like our big, you know, the FT's big analysis slot, like 2000 words, book reviews, whatever. And so I would get tapped for this too. So once after Ferguson, I started getting emails from editors in London being like, Hey, could you do this? Could you do that? And it was always related to race. Cause I was the only one at the paper writing about it. It was fantastic, frankly. And so while I was in New York, I was doing all of that. You know, I do like lunch with the FT, which is another kind of weekend slot. And that was, it was nice. We loved living in New York. We have a lot of friends there. But like I said, we'd kind of been in the States for about to be five years. And uh, I started getting the itch. And I think my wife was down too, in part because we were about to have our second child and it would mean that you know if we moved she could have kind of an extended maternity leave where wherever we went for a little bit before getting back to work because on the first one you know she worked for an american company which provided right i don't know three days of maternity leave maybe and so looking for a little bit more on the second one and you know like she was up for it and so we i started looking for foreign correspondent jobs that would come up and the FT doesn't have a ton, right? It's not as big as the times or Bloomberg or Reuters, but they come up. And I think originally I applied for the Bangkok one and didn't get it, but I was told like, listen, you know, you didn't make it this time, but like, keep, keep applying to probably get the next one or something. And, and the next one that came up was Lagos. And so I asked Sarah if she was down and she was, so I applied for that. I mean, I think, some correspondents who come to Africa, maybe some who go to India, China, whatever, have these like long held dreams to go cover it. And I never really, <laughs> I never really had that, but I knew that this Lagos job was kind of a great one from a buddy of mine who'd done it like 10 years earlier. He was like, it's low key, the best job at the paper, but people just kind of don't know it and are kind of scared of it. And so, so I decided to apply. Sure. Sure. Now that I think about it, I think this guy I know, Matt Green, might have had that job at some point. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually never, I've never met him in person because I think he left to go to Reuters like 
a couple years after I joined the FT, but he had this job, I want to say 05 to 07 or something like that. Like somewhere, somewhere in the 2000s, I think. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, he always talked about it as being a great job because Nigeria with kind of some former British influence, they look very highly on the FT. The access is very good. People want to talk to you because you work for the FT, et cetera, et cetera and spoke very highly of, you know, his experience there. And you've obviously done well there. I, I guess I will just say having, so I went to Nigeria in 2018 to visit my, I'm friends with Paul Karsten, who's our correspondent in Abuja. Yeah. Uh, we used to be based in China together. So he had just kind of gotten there a year or two earlier. And I went, you know, Abuja, strange place, like kind of like Brasilia, but uh, worse in terms of being, you know, found in the middle of nowhere and just like not a lot going on. Lagos, I mean, it's just like, I don't know, this big shambling city that's impossible to get around and all these sorts of things. I mean, wading into that, with, especially with a couple of kids, I would have been, uh, I don't know. But uh, how, how did you find it? It's funny because that's what people said, like, Lagos, are we sure? And I think it was because we lived in Bombay for a long time and it's a big dirty city and we kind of like big dirty cities. <laughs> I came to Lagos to get my kind of visa stuff sorted before we moved out. And I was, I was prepared for kind of the horror story version of the joint. And I don't know, man, it just felt way more low key than I thought it was going to be, and it is generally lower key than Bombay is. Bombay is way more crowded. You're living much more cheap by jowl. It's less green. So, and they're very similar cities, right? They're both cities of city of islands, kind of city of dreams for the country, the commercial capital, you know, traffic, dirty, all this kind of stuff. But in a lot of ways, Lagos is like Bombay was like 20, 25 years ago, like very similar in terms of the level of development, infrastructure, that kind of stuff. So I feel like Bombay prepared us really well for coming out here. It's not like there aren't issues and challenges and all these kinds of things, but they, I don't know, it felt a lot less daunting than I think folks made it out to be. Yeah, no, I mean, I had a good time there. There's, uh, you know, plenty of stuff to do, plenty of great food. Plenty, everything seemed great except for, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd go up to whatever fella Cuddy's house and it would take me three hours to get up there or something and went up to the point of no return, which I don't know, was like some few kilometers away, 60 kilometers away, and I calculated out and we made like three kilometers an hour of like... yeah travel time or something ridiculous but uh yeah yeah you gotta take the boat out there yeah yeah that's what i what i hear and and like i mentioned at the beginning of the electricity going on and stuff like that but i mean it seems like there's a lot of great stories there it's a great place to report i guess we'll talk about in a second uh your stories that won the opc award is there anything you want to say about that job before we get into that yeah, so it did turn out to be like the best job at the paper. And the reason, I mean, the reason it's really good is that it is, I don't know, it's its not one of the places that the FT cares about the most. So the demands on you are not that great. 
so you can kind of do whatever you want within reason while kind of hitting the stuff that they want. And sometimes that kind of bites you in the ass in a way, because I think this happens in a lot of places where the mothership sometimes still thinks the story in your patch is the same as it was five years ago or 10 years ago when True. whoever it was did whatever story they remember. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. the the kind of truth is in the last five, seven years, the Nigeria story has been much more sedate, less dynamic than it was in the past. I think in the past it was like high oil prices, giant corruption scandals, militants in the Delta blowing up pipelines and that kind of stuff. So it's all stuff that is connected to global markets, right? Kind of feeds into the stuff that global publications care about. Whereas in the last few years, the economy has like really plummeted. Unemployment has soared. Insecurity has spread, but it is, you know, it's banditry and criminality that doesn't really connect to global markets or have that kind of geopolitical resonance that even Boko Haram did five to 10 years ago when it was a much bigger story. So what I did in this gig is you're West Africa correspondent and you cover 15 countries in West Africa, but also five in Central Africa. So you have 20 countries. Wow. I mean, it's, it's 18 to 20, depending on how much you want to kind of grab from other correspondents who are sleeping on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I figured mine was 20. And so I did a lot of stuff in the Sahel. So Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger. Big story of the last few years has been jihadism spreading the French kind of versus Russia for influence, the waning influence of the French, especially, and ultimately kind of their pullout. And so that story has much more global resonance than the insecurity in Nigeria. And the unemployment in Nigeria, while an important story, it's like, especially for a place like the FT, you can kind of write that story once a year or something like that. Like a big story on that, you can kind of do once a year. And then once a quarter, you can write an economic story or something. But, you know, for my time here, those stories have been the same, right? It's the same story on all of them. Whereas in the Sahel, things are changing and they are connected to Europe, especially. So it made sense. And it was something I was really interested in. And so I spent quite a bit of time in those countries, kind of more than anywhere. What I did was I covered stuff in the Sahel. I mean, and in Nigeria, obviously, because you have to, because it's so big and important. But yeah. Usually we talk about a story you're proud of, but in this case, I kind of helped choose for us for this uh series of stories that you won an OPC award that's an overseas press club award just a couple months ago the consequences and drivers of conflict in West and Central Africa is what the overall series is called. And so normally I, I ask you to tell us the story behind the story, how you went about reporting it, how, you know, the whole process, I guess, just to start, I mean, this is a series of five stories that takes us, you know, around West Africa and the Sahel. I was just curious, you said you were chose to focus on the Sahel. Before you wrote these five stories in 2021, I mean, were you already writing about it in 2019, 2020? Were you doing smaller stories about it? Or what led up to this series? Yeah, I'd already done quite a bit 
of reporting on this. I held big stories and small stories. I'd done trips to, I think, Mali and Niger by that time. And then I went to Burkina for one of these pieces, which is about artisanal gold mining and how extremist groups are targeting them for in order to generate revenue. Uh, right. You know. but that, so that's already for the, this series of stories. Yeah. Um, so before that, I had done kind of Mali and Niger trips and written a couple. Big, I think the first one was probably in 2019. Niger, I think I went to and I wrote a big page about how they were kind of this island of stability in the midst of conflict. So they border seven countries and basically all of them are in some kind of turmoil. So I had done that piece and I'd gone to Mali for, that was in 2020 also. Yeah, it was right before the pandemic hit. It was my last trip. And what was the piece I did then? I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was another big page, I think. Again, one of these kind of 2,000, 2,300 word kind of feature analysis kind of things that the FT does. Sure, sure. So you had, okay, you dipped your feet in the water with some things, but nothing to the extent of these five stories. So then my first question about how you did these five is, did you plan at the start of the year, I'm going to do this kind of broad survey and hit all these different countries? Or did it happen more, you know, accidentally, you did one story, which led to another story, and things just kind of one led to the next rather than something that was planned out? Yeah, no, it was was totally unplanned. And um, that's why the tight, I mean, the thing, so I submitted this, I submitted myself for this award. And that's why the title is such a mouthful. The Drivers and Consequences of Conflict in West Af- West and Central Africa is a terrible title <laughs> for a series that everyone, everyone else who won had like Break Even or End of Times, like had cinematic titles to their series. Oh, mine was just like Brazilian Rainforest, so it wasn't that <laughs> catchy. Yeah, Fair enough. Yeah, so I didn't even really think of these as a series until I was kind of submitting it for prizes at the end and realized they were kind of all linked. I mean, I knew they were all linked, but I... I didn't connect them in my mind before I went to any of these places or as I was reporting them in that way, right? The one that connects them all the most is this one about how the fall of Gaddafi 10 years ago kind of is still felt in all of these countries in the region. That's the one that kind of pulls everything. Like this was a long running theme of my reporting over the previous few years was that unleashed this wave of weapons and fighters into the Sahel, which exacerbated all of these problems that had already existed in these countries. And we're still feeling it today in all of these countries. Yeah. No, I mean, these pieces really tie in well to each other, which is why I could have seen it happening either way. I could have seen it being planned out. I guess I I read them in the order that they're on the OPC website, and I'll post a link to that because it links through and our listeners can read them for free. I read them in the order, I presume you submitted them, and then I looked at them in chronological order. And, you know, in chronological order, I see that the first one was about kidnapping in Nigeria, which, like, makes sense to me as the first in the chronology, because I went to Nigeria, everybody was talking about kidnapping and knew somebody had been kidnapped. And that was in 2018, before it really, really took off. 
And, you know, you're in Nigeria. I could see how you would hear about that, write about that. And then it goes into how gold is financing jihadism and then into Libya and then on from there. I guess, yeah. How? Just tell me a little bit behind it, like how you went from one story to the next to the next. I mean, they were all a bit different. They all came up in different ways. I mean, the Nigeria kidnapping one, obviously this was a big, this has been and is kind of the biggest security concern in Nigeria. And I knew I, I had kind of one chance to do one big piece about it and pull together kind of all this stuff. And I met this guy when I was doing another story. Because the thing is, you meet people all over the country and they'll be like, yeah, my cousin was kidnapped, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, you're talking to them about the price of rice or something. And they'll be like, yeah, but, you know, there's bandits in that place, so we can't farm there anymore. You know what I mean? Like everything all the time. So I met this guy who had escaped a kidnapping attempt uh, in pretty dramatic fashion. And so I kind of knew that that guy would be my lead, even though I, I mean, I, I knew I was going to do a kidnapping story down the line. And then I realized, hey, I got my lead. And the rest kind of falls into place. A lot of the folks in that were people who I had talked to or, or friends of people I talked to over the years to kind of wrap it all in. For that one, the Burkina Gold one came from a tip from someone who, you know, said I should look into this. And I did. And then I got, you know, ACLID is this, I don't know if they're nonprofit or not, but they're based in D.C. and they do data on conflict, unrest, violence, that kind of stuff. And it turned out they had some amazing data that hadn't, they hadn't shared before that mapped incidents, jihadi attacks, extremist attacks over uh, the artisanal mines in Burkina Faso. And it lined up so neatly. So, you know, the attacks were getting more and more frequent, more and more deadly. So I went out to Burkina Faso and I was able to meet a bunch of artisanal miners in the capital and then outside the capital, in some cases by the side of the road, who were processing artisanal gold ore with mercury. And all, I mean, you know, we just stopped on the side of the highway and talked to people and all of them had a story of extremists coming to their wherever, whatever gold mine they were working at, telling them to grow beards, cut their trousers, follow these rules, et cetera, and pay us a tax or give us the proceeds, whatever it was like everyone did, right? And the same was true of those who I met who came to the Capitol or I met in the Capitol. So that was that one. I think the next one was the death of Gaddafi and how it impacted everything. And that was just like the 10-year anniversary was coming up, which for journalists, that's pretty good round number to mark something. And it was an opportunity to pull all these things together. What's happening in Nigeria with the bandits? Many of those guns, especially early on, came from Gaddafi's arsenal. What's happening in Burkina? Again, like a lot of those guns early on, especially came from Gaddafi's arsenal. What's happening in Mali? Like all over, right? So, I mean, that was much more of an analytical piece. And I was in Benin City here in Nigeria, which is the place from which most migrants from Nigeria, it's like 80% of migrants from Nigeria who are trying to make it to Europe come from this one city. No one's really quite, it's huh. a very, it's a very interesting piece that I would, I kind of tried to do at some point, but there doesn't seem to be a reason why it would be there 
more and it's like specific neighborhoods too in a way it became like a fever and then like a status thing and but there isn't a real concrete reason why they all come from there but i was there and so i met a bunch of people who had been held in libya as slaves who had capsized in the ocean all this kind of stuff and come back to nigeria pretty scarred by it and this was again like one of the biggest fallouts from the fall of Gaddafi was the slave camps in Libya, you know, the abuses against migrants, and then the EU cooperation with his successor governments to police the waters around, which basically sends the migrants back into the hands of these militias that control the migrant camps. So that that's kind of how I ended up leading that story. And then at the end of the year, toward the end of the year, it was becoming more and more clear. Mali had gone through a couple coups and the military leadership there was very hostile to France by that point. And so it felt like the right time to do this piece about how France had lost Mali because that's all, every time I went on a reporting trip there or the same was true in the Central African Republic, it was so clear how much people in those countries were sick of French influence on their politics, on their security, on their economy, all these kinds of things. And it really came to a head in Mali. Yeah. And I mean, I find, so you're talking about there, you did the story at the end of the year, how France lost Mali, you know, kind of explaining why and uh, explaining France reducing its presence in the region and how people were kind of sick of them. And the piece before that, I mean, which was the lead-off piece and how you submitted them, was about Russian mercenaries in Central African Republic. And I can see why you put that one first, because I was like, wow, this is something I've not heard of at all. This is like kind of shady stuff you kind of hear bits and pieces about, but you rarely see like written about in a very like cohesive manner. And this like... It sparked a lot of questions for me, I guess, first, just like about safety on all of these pieces. All of these countries are kind of hairy places. Like I remember looking and going to Timbuktu once to, you know, see the ruins there. And it's like, no, you should not go there. It is extremely dangerous. Like this State Department recommendations are always kind of aggressive. Um, but like this particularly was like, no, you shouldn't do this. And so I'm wondering about safety going into it. And I'm also wondering about safety going out of it. I feel like I read this Russian mercenaries piece and I was a bit like, I don't know if he should ever go back to this country after he's written this. How do you feel about that? And how did you approach safety? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I got a, I have family, I have kids. So I'm like, I'm not trying to risk my life in any serious way. For journalism, it's just when you're younger, you might do that. But like, once you have kids and stuff, I don't think it's really worth it. At least it's not for me. And so I try to do these pieces as wildly safely as I can. So it's a challenge in this region to report on the ground because of the extremists and the bandits and the criminality and stuff. I mean, even just like to take a short detour, when I got here in 2018, you could fly into a city in Nigeria and then drive out in, in a lot of places. You could drive out to the bush or to a village and, you know, report. And by a year and a half or so in, and especially now, you just can't do it anymore even in places, especially in the South, that were thought to be perfectly safe three years ago, 
Like you run the real risk of getting kidnapped. Yeah, I remember when I was there, we went out, we were in Abuja and we drove out to some waterfall. And I remember at the time we joked about being on a highway where some people had been kidnapped. And now I talked to my friend in Abuja and he's like, there's absolutely no way today we could make that trip. Like we would not do that. It would be way too dangerous. Um, It's crazy how quick it changed. Yeah. And so, and things are in a way even more fraught in Burkina Faso, right? Because Pretty close to Ouagadougou, you get into some pretty hairy areas that just, it's not worth the risk for me. So in that case, to interview artisanal miners, I was able to meet some in the capital and some came via contact, via contact, whatever, who they were coming to a village like not far away and brought them in to the city so I could interview them. But then, like I said, when we went to Kaya, which is a town outside like an hour, hour and a half outside Ouagadougou. That highway is sort of generally seen as pretty safe. The UN and a lot of NGOs are running up and down that road a lot. So there's a lot of good intel on what's happening there, like real time, because they have projects in Kaya. So I had a very good fixer, too, who I trusted. And he was like, man, we'll be fine. Let's go. We were going there to interview someone who's also in that piece. But on the way back, we just started stopping at these miners who were processing gold. And there were a ton of them, like every kind of, you know, quarter mile or something. And, you know, we didn't spend a long time with any of them. You know, it was like quick. I felt fine about it in the end. In the Central African Republic. So I went there, you know, for all these trips, I'm doing a ton of pre reporting, preparation, talking to people, and including talking about security and stuff. And so it was clear that it was safe in the capital, in Bangui, right? And I had originally planned to go to another part of the country to do some reporting. And then a Danish refugee council, I think, vehicle hit an IED. I don't even think it was very close to the place I was going, but our security team you know, the consultants they consulted with were just like, you shouldn't leave the capital. And I was like, ah, shit, because I want to talk to people who are experiencing these abuses and the brutality of the mercenaries and the local army and stuff. How am I going to do that? And I was like, you know, I'll figure it out. So I get there. And then it turned out when I got to Bangui that there were so many people streaming in from the rest of the country, like dozens, hundreds were coming in every day from these places that had been brutalized, that the access was actually really easy. And I did these interviews mostly in the Muslim quarter, which, again, I kind of thought, because in I think I read about it in that piece, like the mercenaries are everywhere in Bangui, right? You see them kind of everywhere. And so like, what if they see us talking to people here? And again, like my fixer there was like, you know, the UN is also doing this all the time. Diplomats are always in here too, talking to people. Like, they're just going to think you're one of those. And also, they don't really do anything in the city to people. They don't do anything in the capital. They do it all far from the eyes of the international community, which is why I would see a mercenary at the shawarma shop in front of me in line. You know what I mean? Like, it's very bizarre. But yeah, so again, like... It felt a little fraught when we were 
in the Muslim quarter in particular places, but I never felt truly unsafe or anything like that. It was more like I felt like, what if the people I'm talking to get flagged somehow for talking to a foreigner or a journalist? And it's like, listen, there's so many NGOs here, so many internationals and the UN that a lot of people are talking to foreigners. Sure. And I mean, in terms of the, I assume it's pronounced Wagner group. Yeah. The group that is thought to fund Russian mercenaries around the world, uh, particularly in uh, the parts of the world you were going to. I mean, this is a big shady organization that employs a lot of, you know, uh, mercenaries that, as you've written, are like perpetrating crimes against humanity and things like that. Having written about them, I mean, are you afraid for your safety at all? Or is that not not a concern, you don't think? I mean, no, I'm not. I don't know how keen I am to go back to the Central African Republic after writing those pieces. But at the same time, the group generally seems to take all this reporting in its stride and is very trolly about all of it, right? So they're... (laughs) their responses to questions are very mocking and kind of cutting and sort of insulting. I think it's quite different for local journalists and also Russian journalists, right? Because there were a couple Russian journalists who were killed outside of Bangui a couple years ago when they were reporting on Wagner and they were going somewhere near where they train and they were killed in, let's say, mysterious circumstances. So, you know, it's not absolute or anything, but there is a layer of protection on Western media as foreign correspondents that local journalists in these countries and Russian journalists reporting on this kind of stuff don't have. Sure. Yeah, I mean, about Wagner Group and their responses, I couldn't believe it that, like, you know, who did you find to get fair comment from? But this, like catering company that is linked to the guy who, you know, is supposedly connected to this company. And I'm like, oh, well, they obviously do that to obfuscate their connections, but then they actually respond to you. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like I deal with so many people who like, they would just choose not to respond, but this, they, they do respond and give you kind of these snarky responses. It's wild. Yeah. And at length, like dozens, 150 pages, maybe the response to oh, wow. questions on that one was, yeah, they kind of flood it. You know, they, they open the firehouse kind of thing. But yeah, very, very interesting. So in, and there was a piece that I reported at the same time that actually came out at the beginning of this year because they also make action movies. So... Oh, really? <laughs> a kind of, you know, connected companies, let's say, make action movies. Like, so I wrote about one they made in the Central African Republic about... Russian soldiers who come over to fight for the government in car. And it is, you know, the movie is like kind of like a cheesy eighties action flick, like in kind of construction, but the production values are like way better than you would think they are. (laughs) So they made this movie in the theater of war, right? Like that they're perpetrating. And it's this wildly surreal experience of watching it where They are glorifying the deeds of this group, these Russian soldiers coming to Kar to fight rebels on behalf of the government, which is a thing that in reality they say did not happen. 
they like vehemently deny that Russian soldiers are Russian mercenaries, Russian soldiers, whatever, are fighting alongside Central Africa. They say they're there to train Central African soldiers, but they are unarmed instructors. And in this movie, what happens is what happened in reality, which is that they lead the fight against the rebels. <laughs> in the movie, they have the UN and the rebels. Who, the rebels are not saints in real life either, right? They are committing brutality all the time too, but they have the UN and the rebels doing things that they, that they Wagner themselves are accused of doing, right? Yeah, that's crazy. It's this sort of ironic kind of trolling surreal experience so i wrote a magazine piece about that that was sort of my last big piece for the ft before i left that was about this kind of propaganda and also in part about the local actors who were in it so again it's like i didn't write about this guy but so for instance the guy who's president in the movie is a cousin of the actual president of the country right <laughs> The woman who plays the kind of main female lead, she's not in the movie that much, but she is the niece of one of the opposition leaders. And then I wrote about two guys. One guy plays the chief of army staff. One guy plays the villain who is the former dictator of CAR. And so they're kind of on two sides. Both of them have like a couple minutes of screen time in it, but for them, it was like life-changing right? This was like a real movie production. They were actors and they had been in, you know, a movie for the National Insurance Agency, like a, an educational movie, you know what I mean? Like, or a training video for the National Social Security Agency, that kind of thing. And now they were in this real proper production with like multiple cameras, special effects, uh, wardrobe, all this kind of stuff. And then they got out of it. The movie came out, it was a big deal. It premiered at the National Stadium, there were like 10,000 people there. A Russian cultural attaché came. People, uh, you know, allegedly affiliated with Wagner were there on stage, gave speeches. And so this movie was like a big deal. You still saw like five months later when I was there, people walking around with shirts branded with the movie because they gave it out at the premiere. And these guys who were in it started getting harassed by people on either side. Right. So the guy who played the villain, the ex-dictator, was harassed by people who are supporters of the government saying, like, you know where he is. You're probably part of it. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And the guy who played the chief of army staff was still being harassed by people who support the ex-dictator because they were like, oh, you're with the government, that kind of thing. Right. Like going to the market, walking down the street, that kind of thing. And so they had these really conflicted feelings about it because it was really kind of like an incredible experience for them professionally, but they got paid very little and the aftermath of it was kind of devastating in a way. So that's what that, that piece was about. Wow. Yeah. No, I ha hadn't seen that one. I'll look up that one next. That sounds crazy and surreal and yeah, <laughs> blurring the lines between reality and fiction. It is crazy. That's crazy. Wow. Okay. Just to, to wrap that up, I mean, it, it must have been interesting in your situation that, you know, you applied for this while you're working FT, you leave the FT, and then you immediately win this award for your work at the FT and went to Bloomberg. How, how, what, what was behind that thought process of moving to Bloomberg? And could you just tell us a little bit about the new job, too? 
Yeah. So it was totally surreal. <laughs> it was literally like the day after my last day at the FT, I think, is when they announced the LPCs. And then after that, a few, like a month ago or something, they announced the Orwell Prize for Journalism in the UK. And I was shortlisted for that for my work at the oh, FT, wow. which again is like <laughs> completely surreal. I mean, it's a pretty good way to leave a place and to enter a place, right? I got to say that. Yeah. Right? That's pretty solid. I think the switch was like, you know, I've been at the FT for 11 years, which is a long time. And I think I've been looking for something else. Also, you know, I think probably, you know, I want to be an editor in part for lifestyle reasons, like, you know, for career advancement reasons, but also because I have kids and my wife works full time and it's becoming increasingly unfair if I go to the Central African Republic for 10 days. Right. And she's working full time and solo parenting. So I'd started to think about that. And then this job at Bloomberg came up and it was like you get to be an editor and it's there's a bit of hybrid. Like I said, I get to report a bit and write about stuff, but I still get some of that foreign correspondent life. You know what I mean? I still live in Lagos, but I edit and I don't have to travel as much as I was before. And it's a much bigger organization. So the opportunities to move to other countries are much greater than in the FT where, you know, there's a big foreign network for foreign networks, right? For newspapers nowadays. But ultimately it's like, I don't know, it might be 30 or 40 jobs, right? And a lot of that is language limited, time zone limited, right? Depending on sort of my wife's work is... Africa focused, right? So we couldn't really move to Asia. You know, I mean, there are all these things that come in as you get older. And so this was a really good fit. And then it turns out that I covered 20 countries alone, right? Which was fun. It was a lot of fun. And I had a great relationship with my desk editor at the paper who really, she gets the region, she gets the paper, everything. But it was really just like me and her talking about stories. Whereas now, you know, I get on a call, the morning Africa call for Bloomberg is like 20, 25 people or something, right? And that's not all the stringers and everyone else who works. That's not everyone. And it's just like everyone is up for it and into the story, whatever the story is, wherever it is, it's quite cool. So, yeah, I edit the short stuff, long stuff, and I write mostly longer stuff when I can. But, you know, I've only been here three months so far. Yeah, wow. Oh, but yeah, no, that sounds like a good fit. The one other question that I, that I sometimes ask is, is there any story that got away that you wanted to do, but for some reason you couldn't do because the reporting trip went wrong or you couldn't convince an editor or whatever reason? Had you thought of anything for that one? Yeah. So when I was in Chicago, what I would do fairly regularly is, I think it must have been in the Times, maybe it was in the Tribune, but they would have, I think it's in the Times, they have like a section, maybe they don't anymore, but at the time where they would have kind of AP briefs from around the country. So I'd check it from time to time to just kind of see if there was like a little story that I could pick up, maybe turn into something else. And so there was this like two paragraphs, AP story about this 86-year-old guy who got busted smuggling cocaine in, like, western Michigan, <laughs> right? 
And so I like looked into it a little bit and I was like, this is such a good story. I should, I'll pitch it to the magazine. So I wrote a pitch to the magazine and they were like, nah, I don't, it's not really for us. It's not, you know, it doesn't like global enough. It doesn't really, you know, connect to, you know, would our readership care, that kind of thing. And then like a year later, it's in the New York Times Magazine. So they've done a big, great feature on this 86-year-old Leo Sharp who became a mule for the Sinaloa cartel, right? He was like busted with hundreds of kilos. And then Clint Eastwood options the movie and (laughs) the movie where he started it as the guy. But yeah, if only I should have pitched it somewhere else. It was such a good story. Like you could tell from two and a half paragraphs that it was a movie. Yeah, I was like, this sounds a lot like that movie before you even said it. Wow. Okay, that's a good one and short and sweet. So then, yeah, up next is the lightning round. So it's faster paced questions. Feel free to answer at whatever length you like, though. It's just faster than tell me the story of your whole life. Do you feel ready? Yeah. Okay, so the first question is about the media you consume And specifically, this is one for people who are, say, interested in Africa, but they already, you know, read the general publications. They read New York Times, they read FT, they read the ones everybody's heard of. Is there any publication that you, as somebody who lives in this region, look to that you think is good? You know, for somebody who's looking to go deeper into the region, they might uh, look to. So I have a couple ideas. It's not exactly for people who want to go deeper in the region from outside, but Nigerian Twitter is a big thing, right? Twitter is a big thing in Nigeria. And there are a handful of sort of, some of them are anonymous accounts and they'll have like hundreds of thousands of followers who are, I'm not very good at Twitter generally, right? But these guys are really good at Twitter. And one of the things they're really good at is explaining Nigeria in like tweet threads or a story that is happening in Nigeria with sort of, history and sort of they're really just like tight as a drum the writing is really tight and kind of perfect bite-sized kind of thing so there are a couple of these guys whose accounts i follow and like other foreign correspondents who are here we often like send stuff around to each other the other one is there's a publication here called zikoko which i think is kind of like a buzzfeed kind of thing like early buzzfeed kind of thing and they have a feature called Naira Light, where they interview someone at some length about their experience with money, like how they grew up, their jobs, how much they made at each stage in their life, how much they spend, what their budget is, all this kind of stuff. And it's people from all over Nigeria. And especially in this kind of economically fraught time, full of joblessness, but at the same time, like there is an exploding startup scene in Lagos. There's this huge spectrum that they run through and really honest kind of depictions of what these people's lives are. It's incredibly insightful and really helpful to kind of understand, especially as like, I mean, not a super old person, but I'm pushing 40, like to understand younger people and how they think about this stuff, think about money and about the country and the economy and stuff. Zikoko's Naira Life. It's very good. Cool. And then the next question is, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? So I'm looking for something that is vaguely journalistic in nature, but can be whatever medium, video, text, audio, but something more for fun, if there's anything. 
so I'm not really a sports guy. I don't really, I just, I've tried over the years, but I don't really have any interest in sports. I mean, I'm a sure. Packer fan technically. Right. And I did, I mean, I've been to a bunch of games and I was, when I was younger, a much bigger kind of Packer fan than I am now, but I love sports documentaries. I just, I like the drama of them. There's so many that are so good and I'll kind of watch any of them. There's a series on Netflix about F1 that I watched, you know, like four seasons in about a week and I will never watch an F1 race. I don't even think it's a sport, but <laughs> it was amazing. The Jordan doc, the last stand, the Maradona doc that was out. I don't watch soccer. There's so many. I love sports documentaries. That's funny. Yeah. Let's see. And then what is the best journalistic article piece or again, in whatever medium, but journalistic piece that you have consumed recently? And it can't be from your own publication. So I'm going to name two. There was, you had Ian Urbina on the podcast recently, his Libya piece, which obviously like intersects with some of my interests was gangbusters. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible journalism, like highly deserving of every accolade. That was really good. And then the other one is that it's another New Yorker piece that a friend of mine, Moore O'Connor, wrote about firefighters in the West, like wild firefighters. Uh, it's called What It's Like to Fight a Megafire. So she's an old buddy of mine from J School, and she's writing a book right now about kind of man's relationship to fire. And as part of it, she has trained to be basically like a hotshot, right? Like a I don't know what they, they're called, a wild firefighter or something. You know, she wrote this piece for The New Yorker that it's really good. Like the writing is exhilarating. It's really elegantly done. And I often have trouble reading my friend's work in general, just sort of like, I don't know, what if I hated it? And then I, <laughs> you know, next time we talk, it's like, what do I say? How do I? And this was amazing. So I highly recommend people read it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll check that out. And yeah, I've read Ian's piece. It's it's really great. And yeah, I forgot to mention, but it does tie directly into to your stories too. Let's see. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? It's Catherine Boo, who is a New Yorker staff writer. I mean, in her career, she was like a great reporter at the Washington Post. She won a Pulitzer there. But the reason I would trade places is because she wrote what is, to me, definitely the best book ever written about India, but also I think the best foreign correspondent book I've ever read. And so she wrote this book called Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which is like slim. It's like 250 pages. She spent like three years reporting pretty much every day in a slum by the airport in Bombay. She tells the story of this community. There are crimes that are committed, kind of corruption, whatever. It is inside this community, a real kind of picture inside. And it doesn't purport to be one of these big foreign correspondent books, right? Which are quite a, like pretty annoying. The big India book, the big Africa book, the big China book, whatever, where you go to 10 different places in the country and each chapter tells you about some facet kind of thing. This is like one thing about one place. And by being that, that one thing about one place, it tells you everything about the country. And so if I had my druthers, that's the, uh, that's the kind of book I'd want to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, behind the beautiful forevers is an amazing book. I read it back when I was in China and it's so impressive how like she manages to 
put you in this story and these people's lives and it isn't about her in any way. Like she is not a character in the book at all in a way that so many foreign correspondent books are like, which is, you know, we can all debate whether it's good or bad. And I know a lot of publishers like, Oh, they want the the personal narrative in there. But I think many of us aspire to something like that. And she just pulled it off to the yeah. best possible degree I could imagine. And it's not just like beautifully written. It's real reporting. Like, you know what I mean? Like police records and shit. It's real. It's real, real journalism. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk to her about how she went about doing that. Yeah. Add her to my wish list. Then what is the coolest, weirdest, strangest situation that your job has taken you to? I don't mean this to be a negative or positive experience. It can be either one. It's more supposed to be about like a pinch me. I can't believe this is my life that, you know, my job has led me to this sort of moment. You know, I had a lot, I've had a lot of these kind of over the years at BFT, but weirdly, the one that I think of the most is from when I was at GQ India. So I was, again, one of these things where I had read a small item in, like, the Times of India about a murder that happened on the Annapurna Trail in Nepal, like in the Himalayas, pretty deep in the Himalayas. And it said something about how it was over this fungus called Yarsa Gumba, which is known as Himalayan Viagra. And so basically it's like used in traditional Chinese medicine, et cetera. It's worth more than its weight in gold. This stuff I all kind of, I kind of learned over, over time. And I went to cover the trial of this village I guess by then it was about 18 members, I think, of the village who had killed these seven guys who had come to their fields and were harvesting this very valuable fungus. And I hiked 100 kilometers into the Himalayas to go to their village. I met them at this kind of makeshift jail that they were in because there had never been a murder in this area, you know, in history like this. So they had to build a like they converted an old school into a fake jail basically for 70 people initially because they didn't know who had killed these guys because it happened in uh, a village that was like three days off the actual Annapurna Trail, like way deep in the Himalayas. And it was one of these things where the custom was that every man in the village from age, whatever, seven to 70 had to strike a blow. And so they were all implicated in this murder. And I just remember walking up there being like, this is my life. <laughs> like it was, it was amazing. And I, I looked up that story because GQ India didn't even, didn't have a website then. No one read this story, right? They had a readership of maybe like, I don't know, 450 people. They printed a magazine. They said it was 30,000 print run, but I can't imagine anyone read this thing. And I, so I pulled up the PDF the other day and I mean, I think it holds up. It's a pretty good piece. Is it on the internet somewhere so that I can post a link to it? Or it's... Yeah, I just put it on my LinkedIn account because that's the only place uh, that I could put it up. But yeah, it's on my LinkedIn now. I'll look for it there. That's Yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's see. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? Huh. I mean, most people don't know anything about me, I guess. But <laughs> I don't know. One thing that's like slightly embarrassing, but also I don't think so. I mean, I was a big fish kid. So like the band Fish in uh, high school and college, I kind of 
traveled all over the country to see him and many other jam bands. You know, it's a big part of my youth. And I mean, continued to go see them at, at Madison Square Garden whenever I could when I was in New York. But yeah, that's a funny one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of my other guests, uh, Jonah Kessel at New York Times is a big fish fan. And yeah, not not just then, but still now stands by it. Yeah. Cool. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other piece of media about journalists and why? And it can be fiction or nonfiction, but just kind of tangentially related to journalists in some way. Somehow I haven't read the book, which is on my list for this holiday, but I have read the two New Yorker pieces, The Journalist and the Murderer, right? Janet Malcolm's piece about this journalist who's who gets really close and writes a book about uh, a murder case. And it is, I think it's controversial. I, I mean, I only read it after she died, I think last year, a couple of years ago, something like that. But, and it's amazing that I'd never re- read it before, but it opens with this famous line that's like, any journalist who isn't too stupid or too full of himself knows what he does is morally indefensible. And it goes on to talk about like the source relationship and how it's kind of phony in a way, right? These people are kind of, they play roles in the stories you write and you kind of cut and snip them out of context and place them into the context of your story. And it's amazing how much she gets about journalism and a lot of the things I think are quite fraught about the practice. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I often say I would never be interviewed by a journalist. The fact that I'm doing this is slightly insane. <laughs> like even at a, at, you know, if I was at the county fair and someone was like, what did you think about that? I'd just be like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> but yeah, very, high, very worth reading. I mean, the two New Yorker pieces together are probably the size of a book that she expanded a little, but especially as a journalist, it makes you think a lot about kind of what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Nobody's mentioned that one yet. The journalist and the murderer. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I mean, it's tangentially related, but I, I would want to be a, a TV screenwriter. Like, not even movies. I would want to write series, like fictional TV, comedy, drama, whatever. I think it'd be a great job. Yeah, be in a writer's room, that sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds cool. Okay, great. Well, that's my last question. So I guess I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Neil. Thanks so much for having me. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Neil Munchi, West Africa editor for Bloomberg. I'll post links to some of the things Neil talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you write a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode when it will hopefully be posted on Sunday, September 4th. 
Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.